0: The mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable
1: wherever you are in ireland the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with mayfly soon
0: and to help you improve your catch rate this season we've used a mayfly tactics masterclass with international angler guide and renowned tire jackie Mann.
1: if you want to learn about setup tactics conditions and flies then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and jackie's notes
0: If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places about fly fishing in Ireland. This week's guest is someone I've wanted to speak to for a while. Robert Gillespie is an incredibly experienced salmon angler and instructor and having read his articles on his website robertgillespie.net, the depth of information and thinking that he brings to the sport is incredible. He is someone to listen and learn from. For this episode we go into detail about Robert's background and career and focus on casting matters, philosophy and approach and Robert tells me why he believes that the casting is the fishing.
0: Well I was in the family, my grandfather and the father fished and uh, the father was particularly Fanatical salmon angler, I'd say. <laughs> and, and he also fished for brown trout and uh, sea trout as well. But uh, salmon was the number one thing. So uh, we lived in the north, fished on the foil system a good bit on the morn and in the row. And then he uh, spent a lot of time in mayo, but um, on the Moy system. And I suppose the best way to describe how dedicated he was to salmon angling was that he went in the 60s. He would drive in a Morris Minor, from the north down to the field for opening day, you know. So that's a, that's really how he was. Now I know he 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 was an all message fisherman, you know. It wasn't just fly fishing; as everything goes as the way it was at the time, anyway.
1: And what was the fishing like back then?
0: Well, you know, in, in my estimation, uh, it, it was a lot better. But I, at, at the the thing is, you know, salmon goes through cycles and all that. There was a spring salmon cycle. If you read the the, the Tony George which sort of tapered off at the end of the 60s. And then um, after that, you know, it, it was a growth period and it was autumn fish, but it's changed back towards uh, spring salmon fishing now, you know. So uh, there's, there's, the fishing was better, and I know from my own time, the fishing was better on the Mai. Um Things are changed, you know. Now, spring fishing is still good, but, the big runs of of grouse and uh, autumn fish, the autumn fish have just gone, you know, so.
1: Because, like, and as well, when you hear what's happening in terms of kind of the numbers, you know, drastically reducing and salmon anglers in despair nearly, um, would you be kind of in that boat in terms of pessimistic about the future of it?
0: No, well, it depends where you're fishing. You know, the Moy is still, to me, is still a very good salmon river and it's good spring Fishing in early growth form, but I wouldn't go near it in the autumn anymore. So you know, it's not what you'd call the autumn rivers that it used to be. that is, if you take into account, there's a difference between fishing for salmon in the autumn, uh, uh, fishing for autumn salmon. You know, it's the same. Uh, when we were, when I was fishing on the Row River when I was a teenager with my dad, there was, you know, I mean, thousands of autumn fish. You'd see hundreds in a day going over a weir and a drop in flood and stuff like that. You know, and they were all like um, sea rice. Fish and some of them were even on the road. It on the morn as well. They call them copper fish and silver fish. If they come in bright silver, would say like, but you'd get some to come in with like autumn colours on them. But it was like a shiny lilac autumn colour. And you get those on the morn as well. We used to call them harvest fish on the morn. They were coming in fresh from the sea with a uh, some colour on them. But uh, but as I said, it was is a metallic lilac colour. And then uh, there was the other ones that looked like spring salmon would be silver. You know, so. Those runs don't seem to be around uh, anymore. And then on the boys, there was uh, a large grills run with smaller grills. And on the fin as well, they used to call them sharpened stones. And all that. the two, three-pound grills come in at the end of May, <clears throat> very early June, before the main grills run. And then the autumn fish were really just the later grills coming later, you know. They weren't necessarily autumn salmon, but they were... There was, I suppose it was such a big growth run that the fringe areas, as you would call it, the early and the later ones, there was more of them. Now it's confined to the main Just, and um, it's not what it is.
1: And I suppose for salmon anglers then you really need to kind of be aware of the changes in terms of the salmon run and focus your efforts accordingly.
0: Yeah, well, as I said, the of is still holding up, especially the early fishing, but then everything's relative, you know, the best way to put it is, um, you only get despondent if you've seen it before. It's very hard, for instance, to accept change of something for the worse if you know uh and have experienced it to be better because you're standing there thinking, you know, <laughs> this used to be this, this is, I should have had this been out, or this should have happened for now. But a person who's a newcomer to the sport doesn't have that history or doesn't have that background, you know, and a salmon is a very... You know, wonderful fish, and, and even you know to catch any and see them and stuff. It's it's really hits people in the soul. So, if there's nothing to compare against, they're probably happy enough, and a lot of them are. So it's all it's all relevant to your your own outlook on on the, on the situation and whether you know uh, that it was better before or not. I think. You know?
1: Um, growing up, then Robert, did you? Make a conscious decision because you were spending so much time fishing that this was something you wanted to make a career out of, or did it kind of just happen by accident?
0: It happened more or less by accident, I, and I did a lot of fishing and I worked uh, self employed so I could fish a lot in the springtime and in the summertime on the my and I did do that, and then. Uh, it, it happened on the deal River that I was fishing and, uh, and this man came along with a young guy with him and uh, I didn't know who they were, but he was fishing wrong and he was fishing in the wrong places and he said to me, how did you get on this? Was on the 31st of March, so I had actually played to the feet earlier what would have been the first fish of the season, about 10 pounds, and he fell off because he was about to net it. And usually I don't say anything to somebody who got to the mountain, believe you. He was chatting and he said, ah, well, you know, the one, uh, that was that. And then he went on fishing. So after a little while then, I did hook another one and uh, cleared it. And he came up and he netted it. So anyway, um, he said, I'm fishing with a young fellow all week. I haven't even seen the fish. That's the first one. And I said, well, if you don't mind me saying, so, you know, just, you know, explain. there's only three lies here. The water's the right height. You haven't got the right setup and all that. So I gave him the gear, set him up, Told him where to fish, and I said, We'll fish it in rotation. I said, Don't fish anywhere else, you won't catch any, anywhere else, because I knew the river very well. So, anyway, to cut a long story short, about three quarters of an hour past, he got a fish then, and I netted it for him. And you know, he was like over over the moon. And uh, I didn't know who he was, but it turned out that he was the general manager of Mount Falcon Hotel at the time. And I thought the guy was his son, but the son, he was actually the, the grand son of the owner of the hotel and basically he brought me down in the evening for a meal and um, just started talking about this, that and the other and it sort of stemmed from where, you know, he got me to do a little bit of guiding and then the guiding, I, at that time now you'd have to understand, I could fish freely myself, go when I wanted, when I wanted to, you know, as my own, so <laughs> just captain of the own ship and you start guiding people and they can't fish right and then you're kind of using up your time, and sometimes you're missing a your good yourself. And, all. and then, you know, I, I said to him, Look, I'm not interested in this anymore. You know, it's using up too much of the time, and I don't really need the money, and I'm just not interested, you know. So then he offered me, he said, would you be interested to give you a full-time job? Oh, sorry, give me, give me a seasonal job. I said, no, because uh, you know, what would not be in the winter? And he said, would you if give me a full-time job? Would you do it? So he offered me a full-time job with accommodation and food. So then <clears throat> I just took it. I mean, I was 24 at the time, so... That's what happens, well, you landed in a bubble that's very hard to describe you you there was no overheads, in other words, you didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to pay electricity, I didn't have to pay like gas because the food appeared, everything appeared magically, <laughs> so I lived in this bubble for a bit like ten years, then you could tell salmon at the time and get tips and you know in the winter I cut the wood on the estate for the fires, which was good physical work. I actually enjoyed that you know it kept fit and then uh, I lived like that for about ten years, you know, so it was only when I got married that the real world then hit on the real financial <laughs> tried to get a mortgage just that and the other you know so but it was good i mean i wouldn't I wouldn't change it for anything because the fishing was very very good on uh, your own private fishing and stuff like that, so it was a good experience a very and a very rapid learning experience as well sometimes you know a bit about fishing yourself, but then every now and then, you know, most guests don't know that much, but every now and then some people turn up that are genuinely you know, very experienced and they'll show you things or do things and you learn that way, you know? So it, it's, it was a good experience, for that.
1: Tell me this, you've obviously fished all over Ireland. Is there any particular favourites? Obviously, the Moy is one, anything in Munster, you know, any any standout rivers for you?
0: Yeah, I, I used to um, fish on parts of the upper black water a lot of some of the grouse fishing there was very good now you're talking but back in the 80s and 90s uh then uh i liked fishing on the nor uh, in the autumn that was very good you know down at the thomas Town uh i that was that was a lovely stretch of water and nice fishing Uh you know, really good at times met some nice people down there and uh then i like fishing the galway wheel you know now, I haven't fished that for a while, but, uh, you know, it's a good fishery, good spring fishery, nice big river, big water, good for casting. you know, it's, it's a nice place. So uh, then I used to fish. <laughs> Sorry, we fished in Donegal a lot, obviously. But the morn the Mourn is I still like the morn, you know, it's lovely, lovely river. And it's holding up. You know, the road's not what it was, but the Mourn is a good river and uh, beautiful, beautiful river, you know, beautiful fly fishing river. I mean, you know, you talk about casting. Uh, you won't be throwing the locals in the morning too much for the casting to tell you up. <laughs> they, they, know, they know
1: what they're doing. Yeah. Speaking of casting, Robert, um, instruction being a fly casting instructor is obviously been an important part of of your development. Um, I'm just I've just been reading on your website in terms of all your incredible qualifications. Um, so obviously, is, is the instruction a, a big part of it for you from the casting perspective?
0: Yeah, it is actually. I like um, obviously flight casting I would be happy to go out flight casting without actually going fishing you know just to practice flight casting and often do I mean before I'd done those exams in America I was already teaching what I did there for 18 years I'd learned it in Scotland before that and uh, there was no difference uh, after those certificates and before in fact i give them up since because I don't agree with the way they run there uh, they'd give several certificates up you know so anyway There was no difference in recasting before than than, than when I did those uh, exams. It might have been a bit more practice for some of the specific tasks, but that's all. In other words, it's a fundamental uh, technique that I learned in Scotland, of Peter Anderson years ago, and then incorporated other stuff. And uh, basically, whether it's single or double-handed rod, what matters is how the rod works, and you've got to adjust to that. And if you don't, um, and, yeah, you, you know, you can, don't get me wrong, you can go out and cast and the fish. And, I mean, this might seem strange to say, but there'll be people uh, born, live, get a double-hand rod, single a hand rod, fly cast all their life, die and be buried, and never once in their entire life allow the rod to unload itself without shocking it. And um, that might seem like a big statement to say, but it, it uh, you can see it. And I, I wouldn't even do it unless it was, you know, forced into the, and shown and told and it explained in great detail and um, still it takes time and dedication and uh, but once you once you feel that there's no going back then and then you know it's like uh, you know that's what the thing is based on basically and it doesn't matter then what cast it is or what rod it is and once you realize how it works uh, that's that's, that's what you do, basically, with any of them.
1: You've written, Robert, that you've described flight casting as counterintuitive in many ways. Talk to me a bit about that.
0: It's subtle when you start off, but it's, it's even more subtle than you think. Um, you know what? Well, I started off spay casting, and we'd be double taper lines and fiberglass roads, roll casting on the roll, spay casting on the morn. uh so, so the move in modern times from... Um, Away from longer lines to uh, shorter belly lines, skadget and shooting head stuff and all that is uh, commonplace. But it's easy to, how would it put it this way, it's easy to go from a long line casting uh, double hand or even single handed longer, you know, double tuber lines and move on to weight forward lines or spay lines and cast them well. But if you, take someone at the beginning and, and they cast with a shooting head from scratch or a scouting line from scratch, they will, I won't say they'll never be able to cast right, but they'll almost not do it right, because you can get away with stuff that you can't get away with with the long line. You just can't get away with it. And uh, sometimes I would people turn up for fly casting, lessons, especially with single-handed rods, can think of one or two incidents and you'd have a, like a 30-foot, you know, loop up still water line, for instance, and I'd say, well, I don't, you know, teach people with that. I said, so, well, well, I'm not going to teach short line, short head casting. I said, you can choose to do that afterwards if you want. Because said, the problem is if will teach you with that. You get into short stroke style and you won't be able to handle uh, the longer stroke style. And that's how simple it is. And, and then you'll be stuck. You'll be stuck in, 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 with a limitation. And to be honest you shouldn't have any limitation. And it's the same for double handed casting, you know. No, I use shooting heads and I use gadget lines, but um they're not the be all and end all. And to use them right, and I've seen this so many times, uh you're better you're better to learn how to cast, you know <clears throat> a mid belly length spare line, you know, sixty five foot uh, head spare line and um you know if you can cast that well, you'll handle all the other stuff, no problem. But um, you can't really do it right the other way around, you know, and uh, that's that's my personal opinion, but I see it, you know, what you see, you see, and that's one of the problems with seeing stuff. If you've um, been, been formally trained as I was, or then, you know, and, and you just learn this, learn that, someone shows you stuff, and all you can see, well, you can actually see then, when it's not right either, you know, it's it's hard, it's hard to, it, there's a, there's a bit of Chinese philosophy called about the seeing eye and I, I mentioned that on my side as well. And once you see, you can see. And that's basically to do with the emperor having this painting and he showed all his, uh, uh, sorry, if you don't mind, I don't want to be long-winded, but the emperor in China, who it, it was benevolent this, had he loved art and he had this fantastic art collection. He thought it wasn't really fair that he had all the art to enjoy and and the population wouldn't. So he decided to send it on a tour around China, his provinces of China every year. So everybody, even the poorest people could see the the art selection of the emperor. And his favorite painting was in a gold frame. And it was of two bulls fighting in a meadow in a river meadow or whatever. And uh, so it was in a solid gold frame. So there's always like four imperial guards in that section. And, you know, there was imperial guards doing the tour. So anyway, one day they're in this little uh, village, and a young fellow comes in by himself, too young to understand all the protocol of the Chinese. You now he starts laughing at the picture. What a silly picture, you know. So one of the imperial guards says, that, what do you mean, what a silly... He says, well, he says, you know, it's two bulls fighting. He says, yes, yes the emperor's favourite picture. He says, well, whoever painted that, he said, no, it's not in the big chapel. And bulls, and he says, why? He says, well, their tails are hanging straight down. He said, as if they were grazing in the meadow, even though they're fighting. He said, they would never, ever fight like that the tails to be curled up like a snake or they would be swishing around, you know. He said they'd never be like that. So anyway, to cut a long story short, when the tour is over and they're back and the Emperor to the Imperial Georgia he trusts and he says, Well did the people enjoy my uh my favorite painting in the golden frame and he said, Well, yeah, they mostly did, but there was one comment, one young guy, cattle herder, and he told them, you see, so anyway, the next day then the Emperor's out on the painting and then he goes to his uh the guy looks after all his paintings, he says, take that painting out of the, out of the old frame and put the, the, the other one I like with the flower again and put that one in. And he says, well, I thought it was your favourite painting. He says, it was, yeah, but he says, no, I can't look at it without seeing the flaw. He says, when I didn't know, I couldn't see. I hadn't. Got, I was looking, but I didn't see. Now I can look and see. He says, So uh, I, I don't have, I, I, there's a flaw in it, he said, and once I want to know it, I can never look at it the same. Now that's what the seeing eye is. And that's one of the problems of being an instructor, even though I'm saying this. And I don't mean to again an instructor. It's one of the problems if you come from spare casting, let's put it that way, with longer lines. And you see people hitting and shooting heads, And you know they don't have to hit them. And you know they'll go just as well or even better if they don't. But they still do it. And there's a habit of doing it. you know, And there's a lot of bad habits too. You know, and they won't be cured. The only way they'll be cured is if you cast a long line. So that's that's all I have to say about flight casting. <laughs> Well, I don't mean all that to say, well, that's in the main thing, yeah.
1: is, Sorry? I was going to say, like, do you think the development and the rise in popularity of Skagit um, lines and the shorter heads, it's a shortcut in many ways for people to be able to, because they're forgiving and because it allows you to overcome mistakes, that... Well, definitely,
0: definitely it is, yeah. That's that's fine, yeah. It, 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 and they can fish with them and you can cast after a fashion with them. It's only if you... If you Get into fly casting as a thing, you know, and you start to see her. Or if you see somebody else that's really, really doing it uh, really right, um you know, I mean, fortunately, I live in Foxford, uh, you know, sometimes you go out, Christian Jared Downey is our casting, you know, I uh, <laughs> go a lot of and stuff. And like, he's like six times world champion, you know. So, or there's another guy that I gullied with, uh, Michael O'Kane, and he's a uh, serious serious cancer you know so um you know one of the jokes we have between us or between people you know do you ever see anyone not shocking on the road you know just laugh because it's a serious thing to not shock the road very serious thing to be able to do it and still cast the distance and get the fly turnover for instance you're not getting fly turnover it doesn't matter how far you has it has to turn over and stuff like that you know so there's a whole lot of things in it anyway but i mean you know years ago I've seen another guy, single-hand casting, um, Rory Costello, and he was as good as you'd ever see, you know. So there's, Ireland has really, really, really good flycasters. I mean, the best aligned, you know. Not, not because I say so, or think so, but because they've proven it on the world stage, you know. So um, people are products of their environment. If you go fishing in Scotland, you would be fishing on big rivers, you'd, be, you'd become a good spraycaster. It's just, you know, the Moy is a big river Blackwater, black water. Some, some, you know, sure, different, different places to carve uh, big, big rivers. Um, it depends on what you do, you know. So, I mean, no, I'm not expecting everybody. Don't get me wrong. No, I'm not expecting everybody to be a world class fly caster or to be, you know. But um, I would say that if you're an instructor, you should make it your business to be able to cast without shocking the rod or auto, without forcing it or thumping it. That's what I would say, you know, and uh, to be able to be smooth and steady and, and, and you know, maintain intention and stuff like that. And I mean, it's it's very graceful and very beautiful, and the feeling is good when you get it like, right, you know. But um, as far as shooting head casting is concerned, I like spay casting with shooting heads, but I do not like underhand casting. And I can do it, and I did do it, and I've done it for years in the past, and I learned directly from uh you Anderson but I just don't read it at all. I think it's it's a nonsense, you know. So um you know much better to use longer stroke chassis and, and that doesn't mean that uh longer stroke doesn't mean that you're uh reaching or forcing with top hand and you're just creating longer stroke, you know, that's that's all and that's that's how rods. I feel myself personally should be used, you know. So I don't wanna be hitting stuff. I want the rod to flex and, and do it itself, you know, to a certain extent.
1: What are the kind of common mistakes maybe you see from people, not absolute beginners, but you know maybe who people who did a bit do a bit of fishing and they want to improve. You know, for people listening to this, what are the kind of common mistakes that you see?
0: So common ones would be that um the the rod is pulled in in front to the left with a double handed rod to the right handed say when they hit the rod. And uh, that's that's very, very common and uh the reason they do it is because if they don't do it um because they've forced the line and they haven't set it upright and they're shocking the rod, the uh the poly leader or leader or whatever it is or the tip of the line will catch them itself. You know, whereas if you're actually casting correctly, you can keep in playing through the power stroke and drop them down after as the line rolls out. You should never pull it into your left hand side unless it's a reason I don't mean never I mean if you were counteracting an upstream wind or there was a backwater in your own side or something but I'm talking about in general you know there's a difference between doing something out of habit a bad habit and doing something out of your own volition but I mean if you're not keeping and playing on the forward stroke and on the follow through then you're making a mistake um, because the bottom the tension of the bottom leg for instance is necessary to get the flight to turn over so anything that happens should be of your own volition the other thing, the biggest mistake, is people working the rod directly in front of themselves, and not opening out, not turning the shoulder back, not uh, opening out the stroke on the setup. Another thing is hitting the back cast. You know, rather than letting the rod, uh, when the line breaks free from the the water, the line's going to go back itself. You don't have to force it back. The rod's not going to stay bent. The line's not uh, bungee toward It's going to it's going to go back. You know, so. There's there's lots of little things, but the main one would be overpowering, you know. Tugging the rod back would be one. And I'm talking about speed casting now. And the other one would be uh, the forward cast not being in clean and not not being smooth enough. The other, uh, in single-handed casting, again, it's, uh, I would have said, the, bit, the single most biggest problem in single-handed casting is every beginner is not making it through acceleration in the forward cast. But the second biggest one is dropping the rod tip behind during the power application. That's a really bad mistake, and it really opens your loop. And you, you, When you make a mistake, you have to do a whole lot of things to compensate for it afterwards, you know. And one of the things people that drop the rod tip behind do, a single-handed rod now, is they speed up the back cast because they want things to become an equilibrium. You know, Because you've dropped the rod tip down behind, put the brakes on, basically, you've got to go faster, earlier, so it all balances south out. Whereas if you kept it going in the one overall direction, um, didn't allow the rod tip to drop, it would unload in the right direction, travel in the right direction, the loop would be tighter and you could do it a lot easier without forcing. So it's like the most subtle thing (laughs) that I know of in the world is fly casting. I don't know anything more subtle than it. And even when you think it's subtle, uh, like you've got some sort of handle on it, some guy will come along and show you something even more subtle and you'll be amazed. You know, it's a lifetime learning thing, you know, but that's the way it is, you know. And
1: uh, do you think it's important, um, Robert, for people that I suppose the danger is, you know, you might start off you get a lesson or two at the start. You know, you get into your fission habit and you're going to pick up bad habits, obviously. Um, and as a, as a teacher of mine used to say, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent that, you know, you need to kind of go for refresher lessons nearly every so often to kind of are out any chinks.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I, you do need to get checked that you don't uh, regress, as you would say, or deviate down a, a sidetrack of yourself. I mean, that, one thing that I remember about all this is, you know, someone struck his turn and said, oh, you know, I tailor my teaching to the, the the natural way that the guy moves and all this. That and The other, you know, or what he's, you know, And I, I, I always think that's a false argument. You know, I've refused to teach people. A guy up to me one time and said, um, Look, he said, I'm just going to cast the way I cast. You tell me which bits are good and, or, you know, which bits aren't, and I'll just go with that. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. So he said, you're not. And I said, no. I said, no, no You know, in the past I did karate. She went into Shotokan karate class. I said, I didn't go up to the teacher in the Shotokan karate class and said, him, listen, I just fight the way I fight normally, and you tell me which bits are okay and <laughs> which bits aren't, and we'll go with that. I said, and the reason I didn't say that to him is because he knows what I don't know, and I'm going to learn from him. And I said, when well, I was formally trained in play class, if I had to say that to Peter Anderson and I, he just me to go home. I said, like I'm telling you now, I'm not going to teach you that way. Either you learn it correctly, or we don't bother. It doesn't matter to me. I said, I don't care. But I'm not going to slobber around, you know. So, you, you know, you have to set a certain standard. Now, don't get me wrong either. After, you say after you, you do your karate, and you pass your test and all. You can fight whatever way you want after, but, but you still learn the basics. You need a you know foundation, I mean?
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, you do, yeah. And it's the same with fight testing. You know, I'm not going to put up with someone making mistakes for the rest of their life. And somebody else might, but not me. It's just my personal thing, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not going to deal with it, you know. And uh, you can't progress then if you're carrying with you some limitation, some limiting factor that's a, uh, basically what it all comes down to, if you want to sum it all up, is control over your own body so if you've got an involuntary muscle movement which is a habit that you haven't controlled you know it's like it's like somebody comes up to me sometimes and say oh you're like bottom-hand dominant I said yeah I do and say oh I like you know 50-50 I said well show me a totally bottom-hand dominated chest then and they can't do it and I said how can you make a choice I said unless you could I, I can make a choice I can show you a completely uh, top-hand dominant cast will take out it and it'll turn over I can do it, I can show you, you know, as much as it is possible. I mean, obviously your top hand is moving, but it's, you know, to create stroke length and all that, but says, as much as it is possible, I can I can show you, I can open the top hand and show you the bottom hand on your chest. I said, and I have said this several times, and it's still this common sense, it's logic, you cannot turn around and make a choice unless you can go from one extreme to the other, and then you've got your own volition to kick in there, And you can decide, okay, I'll do this, you know, I'll do like, you know, 80, 20, which happens to be, but at least you've got, you've given yourself the freedom of movement to make that choice. And until you've done that, you know, it's like me saying to you, you know, I prefer to uh, to fly helicopters than small planes. I don't do either, you know what I mean? So like, it it doesn't mean anything if you can't do it, you know, (laughs) what does it mean? It, it's only means something when you can
1: do it, you know. So, a lot, I suppose a lot of times people see casting as a means to an end, you know. But yes. really, but really, for you, the sense I get from you is that it's it's casting is, is is all part of the philosophy in terms of how you approach the fishing. It's all it's all wrapped up in a bigger philosophy for you. Like, and it's it's amazing the kind of depth of understanding and detail that that you you go into it, like.
0: Well, yeah, Michael Lepener I mentioned before, Kim. Here on he was you know, I, you know, I met him and you know, and I said, look, uh, you know, I got, a I ended up got a job in my profession, so not that I was there at the time, but introduced him. So, but anyway, he gets my voice here all the time in he's time. But the point is, uh, he used to ask me about the fishing, 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 fly fishing is fly. And I just said to him, because you know, some people say oh, those guys are only interested in casting, not fishing. i I always said to him, and he, you know, still, still, say, the casting is the fishing. And he used to say, What do you mean? So people don't say that. I said, Well you'll find out a way the casting is deficient. I said, If you can't you put your fly if if I give you a spinning reel and it was like half a spoon of thirty pound liner and it was you know, as it went over the lip and couldn't cast more than ten or fifteen yards, I said, Do you think you could fish efficiently with, you know, warming or or spinning? No, and I said, well, unless you get the right angle, it's not not a matter of just getting the distance, it's getting the distance at the right angle with the right sinking tip or the right tube or whatever, and a turn over, and, and, and. And I said, the better you can cast, the more fish you'll catch. That doesn't mean you catch them all the distance. Obviously, you'll get some with your feet, but you won't catch the ones, as Peter Anderson used to say, which he did, he said a lot of good things, but anyway... He said, uh, uh, funny, he said, I've often seen good casters catching fish lying close in, but I've never seen bad casters catching the one's land for the He <laughs> It's just so simple, and you see it. Now, you know, as I say, um, you have to combine the both, you know. But eventually, you know, it took him about five years. He turned around to me and said, You know what? He said, You're right about that. I said, I oh, know. So at the beginning, you want to know this, that, and the other, and you think there's some. Magic boat and all, but I said the best thing is to be able to control the fly when it's in the water. Um, the best control is you know from how you you put it out there, or put it in, in the first place. So, so now don't get me wrong, you you don't need long lines either. When you, you know it's, it's all right if you're fishing in the morn. You know if you're down uh, Stoban Anglers or somewhere, you, you know then then it matters. You know uh, or, you know different places on the morn. If you're fishing the Eastie and you've a shooting head and a you know, a small uh, switch rod. You know, with eleven foot switch rod. So that's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's horses for courses. Do you know, and I'm not. I'm not knocking all shooting headcasters or all um, short line or you know whatever stuff. And I mean, to say I use gadget, but I mean I'm using it for a reason, where and when and how. And even when I use gadget, I use a long stroke. I don't. I don't have it, you know.
1: Obviously, Robert, people can get you on flycastingmatters at gmail.com if they want to book uh, a lesson. Uh, and also there's a wealth of information on your website, robertgillespie.net. Uh, Robert, I'm hoping we could talk again in the next few weeks when we can talk about tactics for salmon fishing on the Irish rivers and lakes because there's a huge amount of information I still want to uh, delve into with you. Um, but for now, thanks a million for, um, for joining me, and uh, we'll talk to you again. No, thanks
0: for having me. Thanks for asking.
1: My thanks to Robert Gillespie for joining me on this week's show and to get in touch with Robert for casting lessons, email him on flycastingmatters at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date during the week on Instagram and I'll be back next week with another episode of Ireland on the Fly. The mayfly is
0: up and the excitement is palpable.
1: Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with mayfly soon.
0: And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tyre, Jackie Mann.
1: If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irlandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass, where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes.
0: If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.